Welcome to Political Point of View on Coast Access Radio 104.7 FM. In this program, we talk with politicians of all types, of all sorts, from local government through to central government, and including aspiring candidates. Sit back and enjoy. Hello listeners, today is another day of a political point of view with today's guest, uh, Jan Loki from the Green Party. And Jan is in the studio with us today, which is quite an honour really, considering how busy she is. Now Jan, um, there's a few things that I'd like to touch on. Um, first of all, what's new in your responsibilities? Anything exciting, different, progress, lack of progress? All of the above. <laughs> I think um, I'll point out a few, just a couple of points. We're running a campaign around ACC at the moment. So we were pleased with the government's announcement um, to bring in legislation to include birth injuries and cover for ACC. Um, and that's quite a coup. That is, um, and really important because um, of the difficulty that so many women have um, struggled with to be able to get access to good appropriate physio after a traumatic birth as well as just get the basic healthcare system. So that, I think, is a really important step forward. We um, still think there needs to be some tweaks in the government's proposal that they've listed a number of birth injuries to be covered but have excluded some. And I think that may have been by accident, but we're just wanting to make sure that we get all birth injuries and particularly also are wanting to get cover for injuries to the baby during birth, and um, which has been a battle for very many families, particularly um, those who have been living with cerebral palsy as a result of um, a lack of access to oxygen during the birth process. And those people have had no access to ACC, whereas people with very similar lived experience of disability that's come as a result of something where government has recognised as an accident have got access to a whole lot of support through ACC. And that inequity just doesn't make sense to us. Um, so we want to see that extended. We're also campaigning at the moment, and people may have heard some of the horrific stories coming out of ACC around breaches of privacy um, and around sensitive claims, which is the process where somebody's experienced sexual um, assault, where they're able to access therapy um, covered by ACC, but that system really at the moment we're arguing is broken and needs fixing. And one of the key points of it is that at moment you can get access to what they call 14 free sessions um, with a therapist once you get through the waiting list if and manage find to find them. someone. Exactly. Um, but then they say you'll get access to 14 free sessions. But the problem is if you are there with your therapist and you're acknowledging that there's some pretty deep issues to work through and you're not going to be able to do them in the 14 sessions, then pretty much at that point your sessions turn into preparing you for the formal ACC assessment 
that is required by ACC to prove that you have a mental injury to entitle you to longer-term therapy. And that assessment, for most people, is actually a traumatising process. You have to go through every single traumatic event in your life in a compressed time frame that has nothing to do with your comfort with a complete stranger. And for the purpose of ACC deciding whether they will accept or deny your claim of having experienced sexual violence. Now, pretty much every survivor of sexual violence will at some stage have disclosed that abuse to somebody and not been believed, and that is will have compounded the harm of their violence. And we have a now an ACC, a formalised process that does that to about two-thirds of the survivors of sexual violence who says that they we will not accept their claim of sexual violence when all they're wanting is therapy which is not a fun process for anybody it's not like um you know it's about getting access to money that's a separate thing and the other part of it that really just galls me is we all acknowledge we have a mental health crisis and we don't have enough specialists to be able to be providing support for people and this process ties up tens of thousands of hours every single year of psychologists and psychiatrists' time to tick a box for ACC without doing anything positive for the survivor. Because even if they get the diagnosis of mental injury, the therapy that the person gets as a result of that diagnosis isn't connected to that finding. It just carries on with the same person they were seeing before, and nothing changes. So we want that gone. Well, after having some experience in our family recently with mm. ACC, their help was marvellous. Well, but, this is it. But the bureaucratic process... Yep. Is ridiculously yes. expensive and time-consuming. Exactly. And, and I also feel for the staff in there who are well, having to do this. I don't know how many times we were contacted, but mm. it eventually ended up by an assessor coming out from Petone yeah. on a Sunday afternoon to, oh. to see what help we actually needed. Yeah. And they decided in their wisdom that we could have an hour a week of housework. Yeah. Now... I'm past it uh, physically and there's enough trauma in trying mm. to deal with the situation yeah. anyway. Yeah. Um, and we got an hour a week. Now, that woman would have been paid somewhere yeah. about slightly above the minimum wage probably and I'd suggest she'd top out at probably $25. Yeah. And we were given that for um, eight weeks. So, how much it cost them to actually make that decision? Possibly was more, yeah. And I I reckoned it up, and I would have thought that the bureaucratic process would have been somewhere in the order of a bit over a thousand dollars to provide two hundred dollars worth of home help. Yeah, and it could have been just done over a phone. Yeah, yeah, and this is. 
this is another thing that we're looking at and we've, um, I think, this kind of cross-party concern at the moment around the ACC has moved to uh, more automated and yet not <laughs> system that was um, supposed to streamline provision. But actually what we're seeing is that actually a lot of the decision-making around this is kind of it's human right it's about what's happened to somebody and how that matches against the law um, and there being kind of often diagnoses in there so it's not something that's easily um, automated so the or the system is making decisions and then it's being found that that decision was wrong so it's having to be undone and there's um, this uh, at this stage does not seem to be working um, well, there was something like yeah, five well. pages of stuff that we had to oh, yeah. go through, yeah. and then that was repeated by another agency that was oh. contracted to ACC to provide the service. Yeah. Now, the people involved were all very pleasant, yeah. and they were very efficient right. and very nice yeah. and very respectful yeah. and very helpful. Yeah. And I must say that the equipment that we needed arrived uh, less than 24 hours after the assessor called. Now, our biggest problem is to give the damn stuff back. Right. Because the phone number that was on the equipment to ring to give it back no longer deals with it. And we haven't been tracked, haven't been able to track down where to give it back to. Yeah. It's, I mean, for me... It's, and the equipment was great. Yeah. And and that's the thing is that ACC, and it was, as it was, particularly as it was initially envisaged by Woodhouse, and has served us as a country, you know, that we don't have to go to court to fight a battle. Well, actually, I can't say that. M- many people don't have to go to court to fight a battle to be able to get care or compensation for a harm done to them and that's like that is a treasure we need to protect but restore ACC because something I what we've seen in um, over recent decades is just an increasing corporatization of the culture within ACC that has led to more duplication and difficulty navigating and difficulty for people accessing their entitlements. Mm. And that that we can change and we should change. Yes, there seems to be a, a culture of how can we deny the claim That's rather it. than how can we help. That's right. But we didn't find that in our case. Which is great. Mm. The one other thing I was wanting to touch on as well was, um, so last week in Parliament we had urgency, um, which I think was um, fairly controversial for the COVID legislation um, to bring in the traffic light system. And I think the opposition, um, we supported the use of urgency for that, which is quite unusual for us in the Greens. Um but not because that's what we wanted to happen, but because the system was coming in and we needed the legislation, which is in no way ideal. Um, And really we did believe that that should have happened earlier. Um, But there was also legislation to make changes to working for families that I wanted to touch on, which um, 
the government announced, the Labour Party announced at their conference that they were bringing in this, I think they were saying at the time, $20 increase to working for families to help address the impacts of COVID and help families um, cope with the cost of living. And I just want to take issue with the, their framing and promotion of that policy because um, 14 of that $20, roughly, was already decided and in place and was a cost of living that was already in the legislation that was going to have to happen anyway. So it was not a decision of the government at all. And what they were actually announcing was a $5 per child um, increase, which in the current context of how much so many families are struggling um, and this being the government's kind of big step up for us was just horribly inadequate and disconnected from the realities of what we're seeing of really long queues for food banks and, um, you know, community groups just saying that they're reaching kind of breaking point and being able to support people. And, and the other bit that really upset me, to be honest, was that they've funded that by increasing the abatement rate for middle-income earners getting working for families, which means that when they start earning over, I think, like $46,000 in a family, then rather than the government taking 25 cents, they'll take 27 cents. And um, so they're funding... The small increase for low-income families from taking it from middle-income families, and they said this is about implementing the recommendations of the Welfare Expert Advisory Group, which the Greens was part of um, getting that group put in place to look at welfare reform so that we could have a society where we had a strong social safety net again. But that group recommended a lowering of that abatement rate to 10%. Mm. And then, and so this was going in the exact opposite direction of what they were recommending for mm, us. Possibly they could be looking at somewhat larger sums of money from places like Google and Facebook and Amazon. Exactly. Who and I mean, have I, had a free ride. That's it. That's right. And I would also promote the Greens policy, again, of that we took to the election of just one taxing 1% of wealth, net wealth, over a million dollars. That would impact 6% of the country, actually, and would fund us to have a guaranteed minimum income right across the country so that we could, and we had it independently um, looked at, that we would have eliminated child poverty if we'd brought in that policy. And it just guts me that we have a Prime Minister who, you know, and I generally am a fan of, but who has said that child poverty is a key focus for her, and yet we're seeing these policies that are just tinkering and not doing what we could to mm. eliminate child poverty. So It was very interesting to hear Jim Bolger yes. uh, in Q&A and his comment about the disparity of wealth. Indeed. Um, yeah. Which, for an ex-conservative... Ex Prime Minister, 
is really quite something. Well, it makes sense to me, to be honest, that the, um, there are people I know who are national voters. There's kind of the two camps. There's the free marketeers, and then there are those conservative people who have just kind of quite strong values around family and community, who I think Jim Bolger reflects that voter. And they want to ensure that people are well supported and they're uncomfortable with this excessive wealth and greed. Mm. Let's not get started on that. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favourite topics. <laughs> uh, very interesting happening last week with the National Party. What's your read on it? Well, I don't want to get into the National Party part of it um, because that's for them to deal with. But I would say I'm on the working group in Parliament that's looking at the implementation of the Francis Review, which is about how we make Parliament a safe workplace, free from harassment and bullying um, for staff as well as members of Parliament and the way that has played out has made me even more confirmed in my belief that we need an independent commissioner to investigate um, claims of um, bullying or harassment because we I have no way of knowing how that conversation went. But the way this has played out shows that politics happens between parties and within parties. And I think anybody in politics knows that that is true and that leaders can never be immune from that. And yet we expect them to have the confidence of everybody in their caucus to be able to report things of concern. And I think what we've seen is that that is now going to be increasingly unlikely and we need another place for people to go if they have concerns and to be confident that it will be addressed in terms of with safety as the priority, not political opportunity. Well, I think it's pretty ugly. And it, it is. Um, apart from that, they're supposed to be helping govern, govern the country, not squabbling like a pack of school kids. And it was particularly because, you know, that this came exactly at the time the House was debating the COVID legislation where there was a genuine and important critique of the government's process that was absolutely valid where opposition plays a critical role in holding government to account. And that's a really important check on power, right? And then... For that to be completely blown apart by this, um, hmm. yeah, I think, has not served the country. Tomorrow could be an interesting day. Good. What happened at Glasgow Cop? Well, not being there, <laughs> I probably... Um, the sense I have is... We didn't get the commitments that will lead to restriction of um, the global warming to 1.5 degrees. Um, that said, there was progress and there are finally rules in place now. 
and um, and then and some of that was you know quite you know I'm a level um, you know to see James leading the group around transparency and reporting from countries and them actually getting agreement which was is really important so there's that that side of it is you can say yes progress is being made we've now got these rules we've got agreement it got undermined in the last minute by the um, China and the US and their um, watering down of the statement about phasing out coal um, to phasing down coal whatever on earth that means except um, trouble for the planet um, and then there's the sense of actually we don't have time <laughs> <laughs> for this sense of just making progress, this I think it was, um, you know, if I'm really honest, I I found it very, very difficult to hold confidence in the political process while watching that meeting. Hmm. It seems that India has somewhat dropped a bombshell by saying that they can't phase out coal unless somebody coughs up billions of dollars for an alternate. Well, actually, so that's not new. It? That's been a discussion that's been going on for decades. And the, you know, what people, I always struggle with the language, but people call the global north, you know, the the rich countries have um, have been being told that for a really long time, have made commitments and haven't followed through on them. Mm. And, you know, I I. <laughs> I think India's got a really strong point. They've got some real problems. Yeah, yeah, they do. And globally, we have to find ways to be solving these problems. And and that's more pressure on us. And I also just want to link COP to the need. Part of the... So while there was progress around commitments to... Um, getting closer to the action that we actually need, the next thing is that people following through on those commitments. And that is critical. And people should be looking very closely at our government over the next six months because we have the emission well, reduction plan. The only solution is for people to be putting their hands in their pocket, isn't it? And that hurts. And Well... Except government has the ability to do something about that as well, right? To make sure, because there are some people who can't afford to do that. And we have to make sure that we make that affordable for those who can't afford it. And we need every single minister to be stepping up as a climate minister to get the policies moving and the action happening in all of their areas. Otherwise, we're not going to get there. And it's... You know, that is just not a tenable option. Right, one of our problems in New Zealand is the methane from mm -hmm. cows. Yeah. So would you be prepared to relook at green policies on GMO and GE uh, feed? We don't believe that's 
the solution, and I'll tell you why. Um, so one of them is so we've got a climate crisis, we've also got an ecological crisis, and there are alternative ways to reducing our emissions without GMO that's about reducing nitrogen fertilizers that will have a really significant climate impact and also positive environmental impact if we can be doing that and shifting to regenerative farming and that that has to be where our focus is because that's about getting those positive outcomes that we need in terms of emissions and restoring the health of our environment otherwise um, you know we're we're just we're actually not really solving the problem some scientists would dispute that well science is a process of dispute right that's part of the process but, <laughs> yeah, it is. but yeah it is, is right? political, like, which is a good thing but the, is this the political process yeah exactly but the regenerative farming has a very very solid scientific um base to it yeah we've actually been doing genetic engineering for years and years and years by selective breeding there's virtually no comparison between a a cattle beast of nowadays and what it was um, BC, early. They're totally different animals. Mm. They've all got four legs and a a head, and that's about it. And there's been a dramatic change in the last 100 years. Mm. And some form of genetic engineering is probably sensible. Um, Anyway, we can agree to differ on this. Um, Australia buying nuclear Mm. subs, how's that going to affect our relationship? Well, we've been assured, and the Prime Minister has said, that New Zealand's policy around nuclear-free policy won't change, that um, nuclear-powered boats will not be in our waters, regardless of whose boats they are. How is that going to affect our relationship with Australia? Well, the Prime Minister has, she was given notice of it beforehand. Um, I think this is much less of a threat to our relationship than um, Australia's treatment of uh, New Zealanders in Australia, which, you know, has been a long-standing and very difficult um, problem in terms of the different way that Australian non, you know, who are resident in New Zealand are treated here versus how New Zealanders are treated there. I think that's um, probably much more significant strain on our relationship. It's quite funny because I've raised this with each of the other MPs that I talked to and nobody wants to discuss it. Ah. Well, I mean, I think it's the sense of as long if we're protecting our nuclear... um, I mean, I get that there are broader geopolitical consequences in terms of shifting allegiances. The Greens, we're not a fan of Five Eyes. Um, but but even then, um, the understanding and the feedback is that this doesn't shift the dynamics of Five Eyes. Um, so, you know, like it's, yeah. Come on, let's face it. The Australians are pretty down to with their foreign policy towards New Zealand. Yeah. And it's not going to go down well if they, we say, nope, go away, you're not coming in. Oh, uh, no, I think that is a well-established 
boundary and in terms of our policy, I don't think that's... But it hasn't affected Australia up till now. Yeah, but but they also know our position. I don't see that coming up as a as a tension. You've got more faith in the Australian politicians, Jan, than well, I have. Well, you know, their a treatment of asylum seekers just makes my stomach churn. <laughs> I don't have um, the highest uh, regard for some of the norms of Australian politics, but I don't. Also, I don't see this as. Something mm. raising tension. Okay, yeah. let's press on. The three waters. Mm. What, what's the Greens' policy on that? Well, we agree with everyone else that the status quo is a terrible, horrible mess. Um, you know, like I s- talk to people in the community, like further south um, in, in Poriroa, where there is, you know, toilet paper and everything that goes with toilet paper coming up on the streets where the Titahi Bay has had to shut down on multiple occasions for surf life-saving events with kids in the water when they've seen sewerage floating alongside the kids. This is, you know, in the, one of the jewels, surfing jewels of the country, and it's just deeply um, depressing to be honest, that it's managed to get to this point. So, And we know that this is happening in councils right across the country. Where we differ from the government is that we think there needs to be a slower process in working out what the solution is, that it really we need to get local government, iwi and water experts on board to find a shared solution. And we've got a degree of discomfort with... Um, central government imposing and centralising um, without at least um, articulating a full understanding of some of the consequences of that. And just to... I remember when National was trying to do something similar but using a different mechanism for doing it, and I heard some of the submissions from councils around the country at the time and talking about the, even some of the impacts around when you centralise the infrastructure and the employment around water, many of our smaller councils will lose key staff members because those jobs will be taken to larger areas, which means they will lose kids in their schools and they'll lose people who will be on their school board of trustees. And the impact of that will be very significant in smaller well, communities. Even in Kapiti, the mayor said that they'll lose 20% of their staff. Yeah. Uh, and that's a significant number. That's right. And we can't just The biggest just problem in that. talking to the, the mayors is that there's a total lack of clarity and they're unsure exactly what is the meaning behind it all yeah. and how it's going to work and who's going to do what. Yeah. And it's quite worrying. It is. Anyway, Jan, we've run out of time again, so we'll catch up again. Ne- <laughs> we won't catch up again next month because next we'll be, indeed it will. So we'll catch up at the beginning of next year. Thank you very much. We appreciate your time. This has been another session of A Political Point of View with Graham Priest and today's guest, Jan Logie. Thank you for listening.
You've been listening to Political Point of View on Coast Access Radio 104.7 FM. In this program, we've talked with politicians of all types, of all sorts, from local government through to central government and including aspiring candidates. This program is made with assistance from New Zealand On Air for radio broadcast and through the accessmedia.nz website. Thank you, New Zealand On Air.